whenever you go through cancer, um, everything changes. Not some, everything. You would, you would understand this. Yesterday, I had to go back to the hospital. I've been out of treatment for two years, but you know, I've been in treatment and recovery for the last two years, but my last chemo was two years ago last, in August right now, September, so just over. Uh, and then radiation I actually was doing during the conference, during the October MFI conference, I would speak in the morning, then go to the hospital every day in the afternoon and do radiation um, treatment, you know. A man of faith going to the hospital just doesn't go together. And, uh, but I lived through that and, and learned a lot about God, about myself. But yesterday was my two-year mark, which is, uh, uh, you know, with, with the cancer I had, which was an aggressive C-cell lymphoma, uh, the first two years coming out is the most dangerous time of reoccurrence and all that. So they've watched me very closely. And uh, I met with my doctor a couple weeks ago, and she said, look, you're doing great. I want to, you know, surprise you with anything. But I want one more total set of tests before we kind of spread this out for the next couple of years. And I said, sure. Uh, what do you want to do? So a CAT scan and all the stuff that goes with that. And uh, that was yesterday. And so I went. And going back to the hospital with the same place where I had all the treatments, the same staff that did my CAT scan before, the same doctors that know me in the hallway, the same. It brings back all the emotion of I was just here as a very sick man. And, geez, I'm here again. So here I go. And so they couldn't get the IV to work. So they because I just got back from Asia. I was on an 11-day, four-country, 25-speaking thing. And so I just got back on a couple days ago. And so I was a little uh, dehydrated. The doctor said, your, your veins are flat and you're dehydrated. What's wrong with you? I said, i just been traveling a little bit. <laughs> and uh, he says, where to? And I said, Asia. He said, which country? He said, well, several. Uh, Japan and Malaysia and Cambodia and Philippines and and he says, "Well, what's wrong with you?" And I said, I, "I needed to preach, and so I I preached. That's what I that's what I do." And he said, "Well, did you feel bad?" And I said, "I I never will admit to you how I feel, because you you're always telling me how I feel." So, yes, I felt great the whole time. <laughs> so the first doctor came in, IV, because he had to put the fluid in you, which makes you feel like heat, you know. I mean, it's like, it's like putting hot oil into your body. And he could not find my vein. He went through my vein. He pulled back out again, went back in again. And I am, I mean, it hurts like crazy. And he says, sir, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, listen, uh, quit apologizing. Hit the vein. <laughs> and so he pulls it out. He says, I can't, I can't hit that vein. And because I went through it, I got to go to a different vein. I said, okay, that's fine. 
So then he goes to my other arm. He's already been twice now, two different veins. And so he says, I think I should do a smaller needle. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, do you do this often? <laughs> I mean, I know you do the other stuff, but do you do this? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, it's, not my, it's not my best shot. I said, okay. Um, so then he tries again, can't hit it. So then he calls in their special vascular something another team. That, that's all they do. They bring in this tray of stuff and heat stuff. And this guy has got needles all over him. And he says, uh, oh, your arm's already, he said, you're going to be bruised up. You know that. And I said, yeah, I do know that. Uh, he says, uh, he looked out the door and he goes, he says, he's, he's not real good, is he? <laughs> I said, if I was you, protect people <laughs> from him. This guy, was he had my arm for three seconds, hit the vein and had me hooked up in three seconds and it was all over. And so anyway, that's what I went through yesterday, getting ready for here. You know, God knew I needed to suffer a little more <laughs> before I came to Coeur d'Alene. Uh, but the doctor just called me right before I boarded the plane. And uh, she said, hey, good news. Uh, you are totally clean. There is nothing going on. She, she said, two years, yeah. No cancer cell moving around on me and uh, etc. Anyway, it was my wife was more moved than I was when she she was standing there when I got the phone call. And of course, you know how that feels, you know. And she was listening, so she's crying. So thank God, thank God. And I said, Sharon, did you think there would be a different message? <laughs> of course, I'm I'm worried more than her, but I would never let her know that. Man of faith. I am a man of faith, yes. And faith embraces suffering at times. Doesn't get around it. Sometimes uh, the miracle God gives you is not the miracle you ask for. It's the miracle that he designs. And that design is for a beyond purpose that you can't see. And so sometimes what we think, what we see, how we go at it, so limited that God has to pull back and let us kind of go through so that he can hook up after we get through and explain what was so that you know what shall be. And sometimes when you put the past, present, and future together, it's called mystery. And that's exactly what it is. It's a mystery. Life is a mystery. Things that happen, you can't script, and sometimes you can't explain. I'm going to try and just enter into your weekend with you with the feeling I have, and, and that is miracles. The, the, the theme that I'll be on all weekend is the word miracle. I could do 
dozens of things at conferences. I mean, I just spoke 25 times on 15 different subjects, and that's the way I do it all the time. And I don't know why exactly I was drawn to this. I wrote a book on it. It's here. It's called Miracles. You can pick it up. I'll sign it for you. And it's worth your read because it's not information. It's reality. It's birthed out of journey, not out of research. Birthed out of experience, out of fire, out of life. And that's where I felt to land in this conference is to enter in with you to an atmosphere that has something to do with miracles. There's not a person in this room that doesn't need a miracle or someone really close to you needs a miracle. Whether it's your children or your relatives or your friend that you work with or the neighbor or somebody. One day when I was walking around the hospital, they were walking me. I couldn't walk because the tumor was in my hip. And so when they treated me, it messed up my walking and killed some of my nerves. That's why I have a lump now. And so it was just part of the package. That's, you know, they killed cancer and at the same time they killed my body. And so they're walking me around the room up in the oncology department. And I realized as I was walking around the room, I had been through, you know, 300 hours of chemo. It's a lot of chemo. And uh, I'd been in that hospital for days and night, days and night, days and night. My treatments were five, 24-7 every three weeks, you know. So you're, you're there, and then you get deathly sick. You recover, feel pretty good for five days, and start all over again. And so that was my life for eight months. And so I'm walking around with the two nurses, and they're, they're trying to cheer you up as you walk. But I realized as I walked around something I hadn't realized to that point. Everyone around me is dying. It's an oncology ward. Leukemia, cancer. Every age, every room, there's no laughter, joking going on. There's no nurses laughing and joking at their stations. It's quiet. The hum of machines and the quietness of the walk and every room has different people. Some people just staring at the ceiling all hooked up and Look like me, no hair, you know, thin, and all the stuff that goes on. And then some people are worse off than that. And some families are there saying goodbye. And some families are there trying to embrace what the doctor's saying. So as I walked around, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of no wonder I feel the way I feel. I'm surrounded with depression and discouragement and death and no hope, no hope. The girl next to me, was graduated from high school. They had to put her in a wheelchair to get her to the graduation. She had leukemia. She died six days after she graduated. So the family, and she knew it. I talked with her. She goes, I know that I I just want to make it to graduation. And then if I die right after that, it's okay. I mean, this is an 18-year-old girl who was beautiful, smart, had every reason to live. And she died. The guy next to me on the other side was 26 years old, and he had every reason to live too, a very wealthy young man, but had an incurable kind of cancer, and it was destroying him so quickly. And so as I experienced that, I realized 
This is a very, very hard emotional situation to be in, spiritual, everything else. How do I get my head around this, my spirit, and not get sucked into this atmosphere and sucked into hopelessness and, and everything else? And so I found myself having to meditate on God and the word of God and the scriptures I knew. It was too hard to read because I was so drugged up. I mean, I was on 11 morphines a day. Uh, just for the pain, and I couldn't even take a half a morphine right now and not be zonked out. I was on 11 morphines a day and another 20-some pills, 31 different pills a day, plus the chemo. And so I, I couldn't read anything. I don't think I read the whole time I was in the hospital, so drugged up, but I could remember. And so I would just go through beginning in Genesis, and I would quote to myself as many scriptures as I could, chapter by chapter, until I got to Exodus, I do the same thing. And I would work my way through the Bible by memory. And I would quote or go through stories by memory and just try to say God and try to believe that God's hand is in everything and he is sovereign, he is good, and he is gracious and he can work. And how do you make this an understandable thing for my spirit? And there came a, a crossover point for me. The crossover was to let go. Everyone say let go. It was a crossover point for me not to bargain, beg, or manipulate God. Not about my calling, not about my family, not about the church. I had a lot of reasons to live also. But there came a point where I had to actually believe in my own theology of sovereignty, that God is in control. And that God's control is his character. And his character means God is good and God is just. It does not mean God is fair. He is just. And so I had to embrace sovereignty and just say, okay. I cross over. Whatever you want to do, you do. I am not going to struggle and I am not going to fight. And I'm not going to bargain. And I'm not going to try to face my way out of this. I have enough faith. I have enough whatever. And if you want to do a miracle, you do a miracle. If you don't want to do a physical and you want to take me to heaven, then just give me peace and overwhelm me and help my poor wife. She'll probably end up marrying some wealthy Pakistani businessman. <laughs> <laughs> and she'll, she's beautiful. She looks young and, and she won't have a problem. I go to heaven and she will inherit a lot of money and, okay. (laughs) Reality. As I went through um, my dilemma with cancer, healing and miracles and trying to ask God for that, Wendell, my best friend, died of cancer. Howdy, who ran MFI before me as administrator, who I had known my whole young Christian life since I'd been in Portland, which is since 1972, died of cancer. Ron Anderson, who was my chief prayer guy, died of cancer. One of my young leaders, who was a coming star, died of leukemia. And I could go on, not trying to depress you, but just trying to bring you into the frame of reference I want you to get into. 
I had no guarantee that I was special, different than any of those guys. They all had families and callings and churches and ministries and You have to cast yourself into that sovereign will of God and say, okay, God, I don't understand what or why, but I will just move ahead in faith, believing that your will will be worked out and you'll do something in my spirit. I had a vision. I had a vision of the cancer. It was actually the very first chemo treatment I had. It was the very first night, Friday night at 8 o'clock when I came to on that first treatment, which I had no idea what to expect with chemo. But when they hooked me up, and I was in such pain anyway, and finally when I got through the first few hours of chemo and they put me on the morphine and everything else, I was out. And during that first treatment, 8 o'clock on that Friday night, I had a vision. I don't get visions. I'm, I'm, not, I'm prophetic sometimes in other ways. But I had a vision of the cancer exploding. I, I, could, I saw it explode. And, you know, when they finished the chemo with me, they said, the doctor, my Dr. Boyle, who's one of my best friends now, we go see her even though we don't have to go see her. She requests to see my wife and I all the time when we have no reason to see her. And we just go in and sit down. And she goes, I hope you don't mind that I called you guys in. Everything's fine. You're fine. Let's just talk. And, and we will just talk about her marriage and her children and life and God and the Bible and, and prayer and, and how I'm feeling. What, and so she said to me, she said, Frank, the chemo has exploded your tumor. She says, your tumor doesn't exist. She said, it's gone. The only thing left is scar tissue. And that's exactly what I saw. I saw that thing exploding. Little did I know I was seeing the medical actual work that was going to happen. And so as I moved ahead and began to see God answer prayers and do things with me, it's a, it's a funny thing. And, and I don't, you know, I'm just trying to, again, introduce you to me on where I'm going with this will be important. Um, I had thousands of people praying for me. I had hundreds of emails, texts. I had so many things going on. The one thing that I had inside of me was absolutely no fear of death. Zero. I had no fear of death. And the other thing I had was an absolute confidence that I would be healed. Now, I didn't tell everybody that because they were telling me that. But I knew in my heart, this is not unto death. This is, this is, God's up to something different. And I don't quite see it yet. Now, fast forward, go backward. 1968. I'm 18 years old. I'm a Jesus freak. I have long hair. And I look just like a guy that you would see that was a hippie in California. That was me. I was a druggie. My dad was a pastor, but I hated church, hated God, hated everything. I was, I was not spiritual, not even one little bit. I was not saved. And so I had totally rebelled against God. And God visited me uh, at midnight on a golf course on the 18th hole on the green, which was next to Albie Pearson's house, who was a center fielder for the Los Angeles Angels. 
the second smallest player in the history of baseball. Alfie was doing meetings at his house, and I went to one. I didn't know it was Christian. I went there to sell pot. And so I had two bags, two baggies of pot in my peacoat, those blue buttoned-up peacoats, you know. And so I went there, and then only to discover this is a Christian meeting. And I was so embarrassed for them. What are you people doing here? Why are you sitting on the floor? And Albie had slid in the second back out, and he was out of baseball. He was now a scout for the Angels and helping with the Giants, and he was doing all the colleges in Southern California. That's what he was doing with his life as a scout, and I played baseball, and so he came to my high school, Riverside and Rubido. And so three of us were scouted, by major league teams. Uh, the other two guys were drafted and God left me for greater things, <laughs> which wasn't baseball. But I tried out for the Orioles. I tried out for the Angels. I tried out for, I tried out for several teams. The last team I tried out for, the, the scout told me with his big wad of tobacco in his mouth like they do and a pot belly just like they look on TV, <laughs> he said to me, there was 11 of us left. We had gone through 100 guys. There's 11 of us left. He lined up the 11. Only one guy out of 300 guys got drafted, even to go to the minor leagues. And he just simply said to the guys on the first baseline, keep your day job. Goodbye. Keep your day job. Does that mean you don't need me? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. And so going to Alvey's, finally, I find God. I get, I get the Holy Spirit. And that in itself is a testimony of how in the world I got filled with the Holy Spirit when I knew nothing about the Holy Spirit and certainly knew nothing about tongues. And I got filled with the Holy Spirit supernaturally. And so I'm with Alvey. I'm now living at his house months down the road and Alvy says to me hey I want you to go with me to a meeting today to listen to a woman preach I said sure I don't have anything against women uh, women preachers I, I don't know better uh, so we went into LA to the Shrine Auditorium and listened to Catherine Comer and so I am just 18 years old, and Albie is a celebrity, and so he pulls up. They take him to the back gate, through the back door. Shrine Auditorium was an ugly, old, old, old building, seated 8,000 people, but it was one ugly building. And in the back was uh, dozens of vacant uh, offices with cubicles. There were dozens of them. And so Albie and I were brought into that area, where the cubicles were, and we were walking kind of down an aisle, and in comes Catherine Coleman with her white dress, which was her trademark. But I had never seen her before, never heard of her, knew nothing about a Catherine Coleman in my life. And here she comes down the aisle, oh, ah! 
and, and, and her garments are flowing, you know, her white dress, you know, it's attached to her sleeve, and so she looked like a, she had a parachute on. <laughs> and so she comes down the aisle and hugs Alvy, and who is this young man? And Alvy says, ah, oh, he's one of the kids living with me, he used to be on drugs. Oh, Jesus, wonderful, so wonderful. I want you to give your testimony today. Uh. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is absolutely my journey. I said, testimony, like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> she says, well, what Jesus has done in your life. I said, he's done everything in my life. But what piece do you want me to talk about? She says, I'll ask you questions. Well, I had no idea when I stepped out onto the platform. There's 8,000 people in that room. And I had an experience. I, was, I could have had a heart attack right then. I'd never been in front of so many people. And it started, they sang a couple of hymns, actually, and Dino was playing the piano. And then she called me up. She says, we have a young man here, and blah, blah, blah. And so I went up. She had an arm around me. I have no idea I'm making history and that this woman is so important to the kingdom. I have no idea about nothing. And so I give my testimony. She prays for me, lays hands on me, and prays this prayer. She prays this prayer. May you carry... Miracles to your generation. That's what she prayed. Catherine Cromer. I wouldn't know if it was any woman. I mean, she's nothing to me until she started praying for me. And the anointing of God came on me like I had never, ever felt anything in my life. I mean, it took everything within me not to fall down. And... I didn't even know falling down was okay. I, I'm, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, people. I was vacant when it came to Holy Spirit. I knew nothing, nothing. So we're sitting in the meeting, and she starts moving in her healing gift. And she starts calling out. And she would just say, on this side of the auditorium, there's something going on. Yes, there's a young girl being healed of deaf ears. And there's a young girl being healed of blindness. And over here, there's a... She would start moving in this, which I had never seen, didn't know what she was doing. But I was on the edge of my seat thinking, what happens if they don't get healed? How embarrassing that you've said it. That's what I'm thinking. What a setup is this? This is going to be, whoa, someone's going to want to just zip a hole and fall in. I mean, this is going to be horrible for this woman. I'd never seen a healing in my life. I experienced in the Jesus People movement tons of miracles, healings, so much that we started the house in Riverside called the House of Miracles. That's, that was the name of our little Jesus freak house. 
and we started other houses so that we could witness to young people and pray for miracles and healings, which we saw really almost on a normal basis. I mean, maybe one a week or something. We saw miracles pretty much all the time. Not every time, but all the time. There was a healing, a miracle going on. Then, fast forward, I go to Bible college and become a teacher. I quit praying for the sick. I quit moving in miracles because I'm now going to teach. Fast forward, I become a pastor, plant a church in Eugene before I took City Bible. I pastored down in Eugene for 12 years. Fast forward, during the 12 years, I went back to college. I went to Oral Roberts University and did my Master's of Divinity degree and my doctorate degree while I was pastoring. One of my assignments, because of Oral Roberts, whom I got to know, and Richard, and the whole family while I was there because of Larry Lee and other people I was in with, Oral challenged me. He said, Frank, Oral was one smart cookie, if you don't know that. People don't know that, and people have opinions about him, but I knew him personally. He was one very intelligent man, and he was a very spiritual man. He said, Frank, I read your book, The Making of a Leader. Well, I'm flabbergasted. I said, Oral, why did you do that? <laughs> he says, because, he said, you're Larry's friend, and you're my son's friend, Richard's friend, and you're going to my university, and I think you're a person that carries an anointing for this generation for healing. <laughs> and this, this is what he said to me. He says, I have a question for you, Frank Damasio. Yeah, it, whenever he wanted to adjust me, it was always never Frank. It was Frank Damasio. <laughs> and I said, what's that, Earl? He says, uh, 349 pages. He had the book right there, pulled it out. 349 pages. He said, you did your homework. I did. <laughs> he said, answer me. Why is there not one page on healing? How are you going to make a leader and not have any teaching on healing? And I realized it in that second. He's right. I bypassed it totally. I did character studies right through the whole book. It's a good book on leadership. But somehow I missed one of my callings, one of my gifts to talk about miracles and healings because I was so into theology and everything else. The miracle and healings was not a big deal to me and I didn't see it as really that necessary for a person to be a leader, so I didn't write about it. And he confronted me. He said, Frank, I want you to renew your gift on healing. I said, Oral, how do you know I have a gift? He says, my gift is discernment. If, you, if you've ever listened to Oral teach, he will tell you that over and over again, that his gift, more than miracles, was discernment. And he could discern what was wrong, and then he would pray that way, discern demonic powers. He had a discernment gift, and he says, I discern. And he says, I discern you have it, and you've buried it. 
And I said, I, I think you're right. What do I do? He said, you pastor a church now, don't you? I said, I, I, I do. He said, I want you to start praying for the sick every service. I said, well, Earl, there's, there's you know, every service? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, I want you to put it back into your mainstream. Start praying for the sick. Pray for healing, miracles. He said, Jesus had preaching, teaching, and healing. He said, Pentecostals have some healing, poor teaching, and poor preaching. So he said, it's backwards with a lot of church. He says, you're an intelligent man. You could bring balance to teaching, preaching, and power. He said, don't forget the power. And he was right. I had. I had moved over to the academic side, writing and teaching in universities and colleges and seminaries and doing this stuff. And I enjoyed the classroom. But I had a jolt. Okay. I'm going to move myself back and see what happens. Well, I'm not going to tell you what happened until I at least read one scripture. <laughs> it, the, the sign back here says finish. <laughs> is that a spiritual, is that a hint or is that a declaration? I, I don't, what do you want me to do? You want me to keep going up a little bit more? Okay. Is that okay? How many are getting something out of this? Good. Well, good. Good. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Okay, here's a slide, the first one. My first foundation stone to healing and miracles ministry was a revelation of who God was and is. God is good. I was raised with God is mean. He's waiting for you to walk around the corner. He has a baseball bat, and he's going to whack you a good one. <laughs> that was my idea of God. Well, God is good. God is all-powerful. God works miracles. And... I am ready for my miracle. In this moment, everyone say this moment. I receive faith to believe for miracles. In the room, there are people that need miracles. And this weekend, if you don't miss any of the meetings and bring people that are sick and need healing, need miracles, not just in the physical, but the spiritual, the mental, the marital, the financial, every realm of life, I'm going to guarantee you something. We're going to see some miracles this weekend. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. A miracle for you. I used to always have the idea that I could get a miracle for someone else. But I want you to take down Two scriptures, Matthew 8, 13, and then Matthew 17, 20. But Matthew 8, 13 is on the screen. And I want you to notice the word you. 
Why are you? Because I'm kind of a commentary into the obvious for a moment here. So my teaching side for a second. The word you in the Greek means the one being addressed specifically. You. The one being addressed specifically. It actually has the idea of singling out a person so that it can't be confused that you're talking to that person. So when Jesus uses this Greek word, he's talking about the you, the person being addressed, the person being singled out. And this is the greatest thing about that Greek word, positioned for something to come to you. So when it says, in our modern vernacular, we wouldn't even notice, go your way, and you have believed. So let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that hour. You, I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm singling you out, I'm addressing you, and I'm positioning you to receive something yourself. Not for the person to the left the right or behind you or mom or dad or brother. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to your barrenness. I'm talking to your sickness. I'm talking to your miscarriage. I'm talking to your cancer. I'm talking to your leukemia. I'm talking to your diabetes. I'm talking to your blind eyes, your deaf ears. I'm talking to those areas of your life that are totally barren that you can't turn around. I'm talking to you. And that's the only way you'll ever receive a miracle is if you feel you're singled out. You're positioned, and this is for you. And you have faith to believe it's for you. In Matthew 17, 20, notice the word you. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, there was a problem that he was having with their unbelief, and now he's going to explain it. For assuredly, I say to, come on, say it. And I say to you, so even though Jesus was speaking to corporate whole of people like hundreds or thousands or Sermon on the Mount, or in this case, there would have been at least a few hundred people there. He made the word go to a person, not a crowd. So he was addressing the person with the need, even though the person with the need didn't know they were the you that he was addressing. So he says... I say to you, well, I feel like Jesus is, I mean, uh, you know, it happens to me. And it's a blessing, a blessed thing when it happens. If someone says to me, and you would have this, J.O., I'm sure, that people come and say, I thought you were preaching just to me today. <laughs> is that right? People will say, I, I, you were reading my mail, Pastor Frank. You were, I don't know who else, but you were talking directly to me. What is that? That's when faith lands on the you. The person being addressed by the Holy Spirit and personally being positioned for that miracle is a person who has a Holy Spirit invasion that comes into their heart and mind and faith is created and in that atmosphere, a miracle is birthed because it's to you. So Jesus says, I say to you, if, come on, say it. If you have faith as a mustard seed, come on, say it again. You. you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, 
and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. For you. I don't just want to hear about miracles. I want one. I don't just want to read about people in the Bible who had them. I want one. Jesus healed nine people with blind eyes. People healed by Jesus are recorded individually. It doesn't just have one scripture that says, and there were nine blind eyes healed. (laughs) There were, but Jesus says, let me tell you about the you. Let me tell you their name. Let me tell you what Bartimaeus said to me. Let me tell you about the two men that yelled at me that day. Let me tell you. Healing is a very personal thing. Miracles are a personal thing. Now, another slide. A miracle for you. God desires to do a unique thing, and I believe that for this weekend. An extraordinary work in you. And around you. By a supernatural power, miracles always come in, around, and through. Miracles never come just to stay in. They come to in you so they can come around you and they can go through you to affect all the people that need the in that's around that's coming through. That's why miracles come. For you to have faith. Okay, Acts 19.11. Would you dare believe this with me? Translation of just the one phrase, four different ways. And God did, and I want you to write down, underline, or somehow get this into your spirit, extraordinary miracles. I mean, how can a miracle be anything but miracle? How can a miracle be extraordinary? I would settle just for ordinary miracles. Come on, is that right? I would settle for the ordinary, whatever ordinary might be. But Paul had extraordinary, and it says he wrought special miracles. One translation there says unusual. Another one says quite out of the ordinary. Quite out of the ordinary. Paul was praying for people and things were happening. Or Roberts tells about a young boy he was praying for in one of his crusades. And the boy didn't have a hip bone socket at all. There was just a flesh hole there. And the boy had waited every night, ten nights, for Oral to pray for him. And Oral never got to him. And so the boy snuck around to the side tent where Earl went through every night to get to his car. And the boy sat there waiting for Earl. When Earl was going through, he said to the boy, why are you sitting here? 
He says, I'm waiting for Oral Roberts. He says, well, son, I'm Oral Roberts. And he says, then, then you're going to pray for me. And Oral says, well, son, I will. What's wrong? The mother comes in, finds the boy. She's embarrassed. Earl says, no, let, let the boy alone. What's wrong? He says, well, put your hand right here. And Oral did, and there's nothing. Oral says, well, son, what, what do you want me to do? He says, uh, Mr. Roberts, I believe God can give me a hip. And Oral said to the boy, I have no faith for that to happen. He says, it's never happened in my ministry, and I don't want to disappoint you or your mother. So I'm telling you right now, I, I don't have faith for this. And the mother said, you pray with your gift, and I'll believe with my faith. But she said. And you know what? Oral says, I will do that. He laid hands on that little boy, prayed for the hip. The mother prayed with him, believing. Nothing changed on the spot. Oral went his way, thought about that boy a number of times. A year later, he's back in the big tent, in the same city, and up comes this mother with the boy. He says, aren't you the boy that was in the... He said, I am. And put your hand right here. Full hip. Bone. Oral said at that moment he realized he had never experienced a creative miracle before. He had only moved in deaf ears, blind eyes, which he would call ordinary miracles. And he called that one extraordinary, unusual, unusual. I would like to believe that this weekend, we need to release some faith for ordinary and extraordinary. For miracles to happen in this room with your life, with your body, with your future, with a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of sickness and a lot of money being spent on sickness that could be given to missions. Billions, billions, billions. And I, I just kind of think my last round around the track will be the next 10, 15 years for me. I'm 66. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, he certainly doesn't look at you. <laughs> and he has on jeans and a very cool shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I would like to think and believe that my latter-day ministry, after pastoring for 
40 years. I pastored for 40 years. I have a proven character. I built some great churches, some large churches, and I preached hundreds of sermons and written books. But you know, after what I've gone through, I don't want to write books. I want to write on people. And, and, and the one thing I think this generation needs is the power of God. They need a revelation of the power of God. Not just all the academics, not just all the stuff we think about and all the stuff we're trying to preach and teach, but, but what about good old-fashioned healing? In the high schools, where I did it, you can do it. 18-year-old, 9-year-old, we prayed and we saw multiplied miracles with young people. Why? Because young people believe. They can be healed. They can have miracles. God can do things in their body, in their mind. We have so many disorders and dysfunctionalities. They have a new dictionary. It's come out with over a thousand of them in the medical world. There's so many things, so many weird things going on. They can't even define what's going on. I, I think I can define it. I think it's called demonic and satanic. Wow. And, and I think people are afraid to call anything a spirit nowadays or anything. But you know what? There are spirits. There are demons. And Jesus had to cast them out. And sometimes he had to break off the spirit and the stronghold that was on a person before they could be healed. We don't think about that nowadays in the Western civilization we live in. But some people are not healed because there's a spirit involved. And we need to have discernment and power break demonic attachments on people's bodies. I was talking to one of my friends this morning and he's going through a horrendous thing and I said to him, I think it's demonic. He said, Frank, I've been feeling that. I said, I'm telling you right now, you've tried everything. This is demonic. We need to go after the spirit, not the meds, not the doctors. They can't help you but there's something going on here that's evil because it's taking you out of the ministry. It's broken her life. I said, we're going to go after the spirit of this thing. Sometimes we need to believe in the unseen world. It's real. And this generation needs it, I think, so desperately because there's a lot of weird stuff going on. All right, now. I got to be done. It's 8.51, and it says now, finish, finish, finish. <laughs> one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> finish. I want you, I want you to, how, how many of you, and I'm, I, I am finishing right now. I'm not, I'm not doing what a lot of preachers do. Uh, <laughs> You know, we, we wrap up several times. I do it. What they do at my church is the organ player comes up. Can I have oh, the yeah. band come up? But the organ, they have one musician come up, starts playing like the Phantom of the Opera. And they, <laughs> they start playing real quietly. And then pretty soon the guitar player comes, then the bass. And then it's a little louder. Then pretty soon the side mic singers come. And then pretty soon they're kind of humming and they're kind of... And pretty soon they just start singing the whole song and, and either I wrap up or I have to start singing with them. <laughs> so I quit, you know. Oh, 
Are we finished here? I want us to stand to our feet.